Onassis Foundation presents Apply Dagger, Heidegger's Thinking in Being and Time Explained, a podcast series with professor and philosopher Simon Creechley. Episode 16, Historicity and Politics. Today, we're going to be looking at the penultimate chapter of Being in Time, Temporality and historicality. I'd like to discuss this chapter in a particular way. The focus for the discussion today is paragraph 74 on the basic constitution of historicality. And this is where I want to make the connection to politics and to Heidegger's political commitment in particular. And I want that to be the the climax of the discussion. So I'm going to organize the other paragraphs around that and do those first. So let's begin with paragraph 72. Now, surprise, surprise, he said ironically. Surprise, surprise, we begin this chapter with Heidegger asking whether we have truly brought Dasein into view as a whole. You remember how often that phrase has been used, uh, have we brought Dasein into view as a whole. Heidegger says it again here. He says at the bottom of page 424, three lines up from the bottom, have we indeed brought the whole of Dasein as regards its authentically being a whole into the forehaving of our existential analysis. And this introduces a fascinating question, which we've not discussed, and Heidegger hasn't discussed in Being in Time. The question of birth, the question of Dasein's beginning, and not just its end. Heidegger writes on page 425, second line, it may be that as regards being towards the end, the question itself may even have found its answer. But death is only the end of Dasein, and taken formally, it is just one of the ends by which Dasein's totality is closed around. The other end, however, is the beginning, the birth Only that entity which is between birth and death presents the whole which we have been seeking. So what about birth? We've heard a lot about being towards death. What about being towards birth? Now, the first thing this does is that it places in question the view. It's a view that you can find. It's something that people say that... Heidegger, like most philosophers, is like most male philosophers, is kind of death-obsessed, death-obsessed male philosopher. And what about the question of birth? Isn't the question of natality absent in being in time? And that's a question that people often raise from a perspective influenced by Hannah Arendt. The issue that she raises is true, In The Life of the Mind, she says that there is an obsession 
about the question of death amongst philosophers. True. So what about birth and beginning? But the idea that this is absent from Heidegger's work, Heidegger is your usual death-bound philosopher, is not true. Here at the beginning of this chapter, we find Heidegger talking about birth. And the other theme that arises in relation to birth is the question of beginning. And it is the question of the power of beginning. Is there a way of thinking about the power of beginning in relation to Heidegger's work? Now, in relation to Hannah Arendt, this is a way she thinks about revolution. The revolutions that she likes, like the American Revolution, 1776, and the revolutions that she dislikes, like the French Revolution, 1789. And that's based on a distinction between the political, which is exemplified in the American Revolution, and the social, exemplified in the French Revolution. An extremely questionable distinction, in my view. But where for Arendt, the American Revolution is an exemplification of the power of beginning, for Heidegger, there is a revolution, but that revolution, at least briefly glimpsed in 1933, is the National Socialist Revolution. And interestingly, in Heidegger's National Socialist text, in the texts where he's writing as the rector the provost of Freiburg University, uh, you find the concept of beginning on a number of occasions. It's central to the rectoral address that he gives in May 1933. And the question of beginning doesn't go away in Heidegger's work. It's there in the work of the later 30s when he begins to talk about the other beginning, the other beginning. So this question of the beginning of the Anfang is a key issue in Heidegger's work. And it has different valences, let's just put it that way. So we need to consider Dasein's beginning and not just its end, right? That's the point. And we need to try to account for the idea of Dasein stretching itself along. It's the phrase that Heidegger uses, stretching itself along between birth and death. So if we are not just beings who are bound to die, but we're beings who are between birth and death. And that being between birth and death is the connectedness of a life. Then how do we account for that connectedness of a life? The way Heidegger puts this on 427, if Dasein is the being of the between, then Dasein is the between of birth and death. And how do we account for that between? This between is described, as I just said, as stretching along. Also in these pages as persistence and also as movement, right? So Dasein is stretched between birth and death. Uh, and birth and death are connected in some way we haven't quite figured out yet. Dasein persists, you know, and here we could think about that persistence in relationship to the persistence in a thinker like Spinoza, who's definitely not in Heidegger's mind in uh, Being in Time and Elsewhere. The Canatus Ascendi, the persistence in being, 
that characterizes us for Spinoza, and also in relationship to movement, which I've mentioned a number of times in these episodes, that really what Heidegger is trying to do in being in time can be thought very simply as trying to think the human being in movement and as movement. Now here, in this chapter, movement is importantly described as Dasein's historizing. That's the word that's used, historizing. A better way of thinking about that is as happening. The word in German is geschehen. And Heidegger's playing with a number of terms in this chapter, which are linked to the idea of history, Geschichte. This idea of historizing, geschehen, the happening of Dasein, the taking place of Dasein, is, uh, is key. So when you see historizing in the text and you think, what does that mean? Well, it's not a bad translation. It's a difficult piece of how you render the terminology here is tricky. But think of it as, as happening. Think of Dasein as the existential core of history. Heidegger's claim is that this historizing, this happening, understood existentially and temporally as the movedness of existence, the movedness of existence, is the basis for historicality or historicity. Right? So geschehen, this idea of happening, is the basis for an understanding of historicity. Again, Heidegger's making these poetic, these almost rhyming sequences. Historicity is Geschichtlichkeit. And as Heidegger almost puts it on page 429, the essence of history lies in Dasein's historizing. Heidegger wants to trace the idea of history, Geschichte, back to Dasein's historizing, Geschehen. Right? And then he wants to link that idea of happening, historizing as happening, back to the notion of temporality, which we've already had explained to us. So temporality, which is the being of Dasein, is the condition of possibility for historicality. Okay? That's the basic point. And Heidegger is, throughout this chapter making a distinction between history in his sense, um, the German term Geschichte, and distinguishing that from the, the Greco-Latin derivation, Historia, which is translated in this chapter as historiology. Again, it's not confusing, but you've just got to get with the, the rhythm of the translations here. We have a basic distinction between Historicality, Geschichtlichkeit, and the scientific study of history, or Historia. And what Heidegger wants to do is to trace the science of history back to the happening of Dasein, the happening of human beings. And when it's traced back to the happening of human beings, he wants to think about that happening as the eruption of the new as what he calls in the rectoral address, the power of beginning. And what he would call later on, the other beginning. So what Heidegger is pushing towards in these pages, and it's, um, uh, it's important, is an idea of history 
but an idea of history as a happening, which occurs at certain points. It's not happening all the time. History, as Heidegger will say in the letter on humanism, is rare. History is rare. Other thinkers, other thinkers say the same thing. Walter Benjamin will say similar things. History is not a continuous succession of events, one thing after another. History is the rarity of a happening. So much by way of preface. In paragraph 73, Heidegger makes some terminological distinctions, which I've covered, and then makes the following remark on page 433. This is the first full paragraph on page 433. We contend that what is primarily historical is Dasein. That which is secondarily historical, however, is what we encounter within the world. Not only equipment ready to hand in the widest sense, but also the environing nature as the very soil of history. Entities other than Dasein, which are historical by reason of belonging to the world, are what we call world historical. It can be shown that the ordinary conception of world history arises precisely from our orientation to what is thus secondarily historical. Okay, so what is primarily historical is Dasein, us, we are the essence of history. What is secondarily historical is what we encounter in the world, equipment, the stuff that surrounds us, that makes up our environing world, but also, Heidegger concedes, nature as a basis for history, nature as a material out of which history is made. And you could even link that to an idea of natural history in in Heidegger here. World historical denotes the history of entities, of things that are other than Dasein. And an example that he gives of something other than Dasein on these pages, this is on 430, is a Greek temple. And that Greek temple will come back in an important way in later texts by Heidegger, like the origin of the work of art, when he talks about the temple as the setting up of a world and the interruption of that world by the presence of the earth, which is another way of thinking about nature. A first thing to say here also about, well, not terminology, but really what Heidegger's thinking about here is that history should not be understood in relation to the past, right? If we begin an understanding of history from an idea of the present at hand, right? If we begin an understanding of history from an idea of the present at hand in terms of we're here in the now, understood theoretically, the future is what is to come and history is what is no longer, then we're misunderstanding the the point of discussing history for Heidegger. It is more accurate to say that the the past for Heidegger, which he wants to refer to what he's called in the previous two chapters, having been, the past as having been, does not really lie behind us, it lies ahead of us. History, as Heidegger says, I think on 
38. History is what lies ahead of us. History has its roots in the future. So I think in order to get a sense of what Heidegger is up to here and why history is so important for this project, just begin from the idea of history is something that has its roots in the future rather than the past. And if we see time ecstatically, then the past is not the past. The past, having been, is to come. It is to come either authentically or inauthentically. It is lived in either case. So we're going to come back to paragraph 74. That's the, uh, the main course for this evening. So let me move ahead now to paragraph 75. Dasein's historicality and world history. In this paragraph, Heidegger continues the discussion of world history and talks about equipment, books, and institutions having a history. He even talks in passing about natural history, and he talks about natural history in relationship to something like a countryside. There's an interesting quote on page 440, which is about three quarters of the way down the page on 440. He says, he mentions natural history in quotation marks, but nature is historical as a countryside, as an area that has been colonized. Interesting word, right? Colonized or exploited as a battlefield or as the site of a cult. So world history is something which is also has to be understood in relationship to the shaping of nature historically, a countryside, a battlefield, the site of a cult, the remains of a Greek temple or a church, whatever it might be. He also, in these pages, gives another example of what he's thinking about in relationship to world history in relationship to equipment or things, by giving the example of a ring. He asks, this is on page 441, he asks, what is involved in the handing over of a ring from one person to another? When we give a ring, and that ring is an act of inheritance, what is involved in that? This is also an aspect of historizing. The change here, the change when we give a ring from one person to another person, isn't just a change of location, but is a, a movement of historicizing. Let me quote page 441. This is about six lines in on 441. He says, when, for instance, a ring gets handed over to someone and worn, this is a kind of being in which it does not simply suffer changes of location. The movement of his historizing in which something happens to someone is not to be grasped in terms of motion as change of location. This holds for all world historical processes and events and even, in a certain manner, for natural catastrophes. Quite apart from the fact that if we were to follow, to follow up the problem of the ontological structure of world historical historizing, we would necessarily be transgressing the limits of our theme. We can reframe from this all the more because the very aim of this exposition is to lead us face to face with the ontological enigma 
of the movement of historizing in general. We go from a ring to the ontological movement of historizing in general. It's an interesting thought. Think about that in relationship to inheritance. I mean, for example, we all have examples like this, I'm sure. I have a ring on my right hand. I can never figure out my left and right. On my right hand, on the third finger of my right hand, which is a ring that my was my grandfather's ring from uh, Liverpool, and uh, my grandmother kept it when he died for me until about a year before she died when she she handed over the ring to me and said, this is yours, and I wear it to this day. And, you know, in some way in that ring, to get a little bit sentimental, I can almost feel my grandmother's grandmother's hand pressing on my hand. I can feel her touch and my, and my grandfather too, who I didn't know very well. My grandmother I knew very well. Less sentimentally, think about that scene in, in Pulp Fiction. I think it's the Bruce Willis character, Butch, the Christopher Walken character comes in and says, yeah, and gives gives the kid Butch a watch and says, here's this watch, kid. It was your father's watch. I had it up my ass for two years after your father died. Your father had it up his ass for another three years in the prisoner of war camp. So it's been up my ass or, or your father's ass for five years. And here it is. I'm giving it to you. It's yours. That's another kind of handing down. But look, this, this, um, in, this inheritance here, this idea of movement of one thing to another is also a movement of historizing, and there is an enigma to this movement. It can't just be understood in terms of a change of location, right? That point is that the ring that's on my finger or the watch that was in, you know, uh, Christopher Walken's ass... It can't just be understood in terms of a change of location from one place to another. It has to be understood in a more existential sense. Okay. Heidegger then adumbrates the idea of the connectedness of life as Dasein pulling itself together out of the dispersion and disconnectedness of inauthentic life and introduces the idea of the steadiness that is stretched along. Again, the question that's been announced at the beginning of this chapter is how do we account for the connectedness of life? That a connectedness is being linked to an idea of steadiness that's stretched along. The German there is rather nice. Die erstreckte Ständigkeit. Where we pull together the disconnectedness of our life into a unified narrative. This is around page 442. And that unified narrative is also something which we can use to articulate resoluteness, Heidegger says, resoluteness as the loyalty of existence to itself. This is a way we can think about the movements of historizing the connectedness of life in terms of a unification, a steady stretching along that is a loyalty to existence itself, a fidelity to existence itself. That term is introduced on page 443, beginning of the first full paragraph there. Resoluteness constitutes the loyalty of existence to its own self. 
And that's contrasted that loyalty of existence to itself, which you could link to an idea of fidelity, right? Loyalty as fidelity. The word there in German is die Treue, which is also uh, one of the roots of the idea of truth, that truth is a kind of truth, uh, a fidelity, a loyalty. This is a concept that the philosopher Alain Badiou has incorporated into his idea of the event. The event is something which happens, which erupts, and which is something we have to be faithful to, loyal to. That's, if you like, authentic connectedness. What does inauthentic historicity look like? Heidegger writes on page 443, and it's pretty interesting, this. He says, this is the last paragraph on 443, in inauthentic historicality, on the other hand, the way in which fate, we'll come back to fate, the way in which fate has been primordially stretched along has been hidden. With the inconstancy of the they-self, Dasein makes present its today. In awaiting the next new thing, it has already forgotten the old one. The they evades choice. The they evades choice. Blind for possibilities, it cannot repeat what has been, but only retains and receives the actual that is left over. The world historical that has been. The leavings and the information about them that is present at hand. Lost in the making present of the today, it understands the past in terms of the present. There are lots of quotation marks in these sentences. I can't indicate them all. On the other hand, the temporality of authentic historicality as the moment of vision of anticipatory repetition deprives the today of its character as present and weans one from the conventionalities of the they. When, however, one's existence is inauthentically historical, it is loaded down with the legacy of a past which has become unrecognizable and it seeks the modern. But when historicality is authentic, it understands history as the recurrence of the possible and knows that a possibility will recur only if existence is open for it faithfully in a moment of vision in resolute repetition. It's a very rich paragraph, that. Inauthentic historicity, inauthentic historicity is dominated by the present, the present of today and the bored awaiting of the next new thing, which is combined with the forgetfulness of the past, a past which weighs us down inauthentically, right? So inauthentic historicality is, you know, if you like, it's one damn thing after another, the present. We await the next new thing, and we're weighed down with the past, which we immediately just forget. Remember the analysis of um, inauthentic ecstatic temporality in the last chapter, which is understood in terms of forgetting and awaiting that forgets. It's kind of like, that's what Heidegger is working with here. By contrast, Authentic historicity, authentic historicity deprived the today of its character as present and understands history as the recurrence of the possible. 
the recurrence of the possible. The word, therefore, recurrence is similar to the idea of repetition. Think of repetition and recurrence together. Repetition is wiederholung, fetching back, as I said last time and maybe the time before. And recurrence here is wiederkehr, authentic Dasein knows that a possibility will only recur if existence is open to it and to itself faithfully in a moment of vision. So authentic historicity is the affirmation of the recurrence of history. You could link this to, and Heidegger I think is, It's on Heidegger's mind. It's not explicit in the text, but it's on Heidegger's mind and it will return to Heidegger's mind in the years that follow, in particular in the mid-1930s when he's giving his four years of lectures on Nietzsche. This idea of recurrence can be linked to the idea of eternal recurrence in Nietzsche and linked to the idea of amor fati, love of fate. Heidegger doesn't talk about love, of course, but we could think about authentic historicity is love of fate as love of the possible. If inauthentic historicity is mired in the past that has become unrecognizable and what it craves, as Heidegger says, going back to the passage on 444, what it craves is the modern, right? the new, the novel, what is the new thing, what are the new trends, what 10 new things are happening in the world next week, this longing for the modern, the new, the novel, is rooted for Heidegger in the inauthentic disavowal of historicity. So Heidegger is indeed an anti-modernist thinker, right? An anti-modernist thinker. But he's got a point. In fact, he's got a bloody strong point, bourgeois society for Heidegger, and I think this is right, is addicted to the new, addicted to the next thing. Bourgeois society, modern society, can be defined as curiosity, as endless craving for the new. Remember all of that stuff about curiosity. And the German is, again, is, is, is an old term, neugier, which has this reference to the new, neu. So curiosity is kind of like new gear. Can we get some new gear? We lust after the new. We crave after the new. That is the function of time, inauthentic time, because we cannot abide the present. So there we have the contrast between authentic historicality and inauthentic historicality. The final paragraph of 75 is also interesting. I want to quote that and say a couple of words about it. If we had um, time and shared linguistic know-how, then we'd need to look at the German to get the full, the full range of, of metaphors in this, chap, in this paragraph, the metaphors of light and shadow that Heidegger's been using throughout this book and their concentrated in certain moments, like 
the following. So 444, the first full paragraph on 444. Look at the light shadow metaphors here. The existential interpretation of Dasein's historicality is constantly getting eclipsed unawares. The obscurities are all the harder to dispel when we have not disentangled the possible dimensions of the appropriate inquiry, when everything is haunted by the enigma of being and, as has now been made plain, by that of motion. Nevertheless, we may venture a projection of the ontological genesis of historiology as a science in terms of Dasein's historicality. This projection will serve to prepare us for the clarification of the task of destroying the history of philosophy historiologically. Destroying the history of philosophy historiologically. A clarification which is to be accomplished in what follows. The existential interpretation of historicity is constantly and in unseen ways moving into the shadows. Heidegger says, moving into the shadows. These shadows or darknesses or obscurity, the German here is Dunkelheiten, these darknesses are hard to dispel when everything is haunted by the enigma of being and the enigma of being's movement. The enigma of being's movement. Two things to note here. Firstly, that this idea of enigma, which I've pointed out a number of times in our episodes, is um, is front and centre in the chapter on historicity. And the enigma of being is linked to the enigma of of motion. And as, again, I've emphasised in this interpretation of Heidegger, this movement, this motion, is the essence of being. What Heidegger is trying to describe in being in time and elsewhere is movement, essence as movement. Essence is something that essences, that something that something that happens. It's not something static. The great error of philosophy and religion and much else is to think essence in static terms, to kind of freeze it into some being like God and then say, this is by virtue of which all things are by virtue of this essence. Heidegger is trying to think essence as movement and this is an enigma. This is, uh, this is interesting stuff. And also notice in that paragraph I just quoted how the language is loosening up. He's not mentioned destroying the history of philosophy, right? The claim has been the destruction of the history of ontology. That's what he says in paragraph five, and it's come up a number of times since. Here, the destruction is really the destruction of the history of philosophy historiologically, right? So the way in which philosophy has conducted itself, in particular the way in which philosophy has thought the notion of history has to be deconstructed. That deconstruction is something which is going to reveal the enigma of history and then we'll try 
and make sense of that to ourselves. That's the task that Heidegger reserves for his future work, much of which is on the history of philosophy and the way in which the history of philosophy has produced an increasing forgetfulness or oblivion of being. 76, paragraph 76, just briefly, 76 is pretty self-explanatory. It does what it says on the tin. The existential origin of historia, the science of history, what's being translated here as historiology, out of Dasein's historicity, right? So the issue here is how we explain the emergence of history as a science out of our existential analysis. There are interesting things in this paragraph. There are mentions of remains, monuments, records, things which interest me. But what is most interesting is the way in which Heidegger assimilates an authentic historiology or the study of the science of history. He assimilates that to the three dimensions of ecstatic temporality, right? The two come, the having been and the moment of vision. And he assimilates those three dimensions of ecstatic temporality he assimilates them into Nietzsche's tripartite distinction of history in his text, The Uses and Abuses of History for Life. And that tripartite division in Nietzsche is the division between the monumental, the antiquarian, and the critical conceptions of history. This is what comes out on page 448 and 449. It's very interesting because it's the, the point in being in time where you can really see Heidegger trying to fold his analysis into a set of Nietzschean categories. And the, the result of that is quite simple. The monumental, the antiquarian, and the critical. The monumental is tied to the idea of the future. The antiquarian is linked to having been. And the present is linked to the idea of critique. Right? And in this way, an authentic science of history becomes a way in which the today becomes deprived of the present and we can detach ourselves from fallen publicness. So what Heidegger's trying to do here, I think is revealed in a quotation on page 449. The, the outcome of what he's doing here is that with this idea of existential conception of historicity, which here is being based on this idea of monumental, antiquarian and critical future having been and present as the moment of vision, if we can assume that idea of historicity, then we can pull away from fallen publicness. And that pulling away is going to be painful, Heidegger says, but essential. So 449, line 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 
on 449. Heidegger writes, authentic historiology, authentic science of history, becomes a way in which the today gets deprived of its character as present. In other words, it becomes a way of painfully detaching oneself from falling publicness of the today. As authentic, the historiology which is both monumental and antiquarian is necessarily a critique of the present. Authentic historicality is the foundation for the possibility of uniting these three ways of historiology. But the ground on which authentic historiology is founded is temporality as the existential meaning of the being of care. So, a critique of the present, right? Even a, a history of the present, right? As Foucault will pick up this thought. A critique of the present requires a basis in Dasein's historicity. The three dimensions of history, what has been, what's happening now, what is to come, have their roots in Nietzsche, these three dimensions in, in, in Nietzsche, monumental, antiquarian, and uh, critical, have their roots in the existential temporality of care and the existential temporality of care as the, the basis for Dasein's happening, Dasein's historizing. That's the idea. Now, 77 is a very odd little paragraph. It's pretty self-explanatory. What Heidegger's up to in 77 is he's trying to substantiate the claim that he's made on 429. Skip back to make sure I'm not making things up. Yeah, on 429, he talks about the researches of Diltai. Diltai, who's very important for the project of, uh, of being in time, not someone who's read very widely from where we get the idea of, you know, philosophy of life, hermeneutics, the idea of facticity, factical life. Really, these concepts are picked up from Diltai and um, developed by Heidegger. And he was giving lectures on Diltai in the, just before uh, Being in Time was published. Okay, so we here we have, we have some thoughts on Diltai in paragraph 77. And the, the aim of this chapter, the aim of the chapter that we're looking at, is to further the adoption of Diltai's views. Right? So Heidegger is a Diltaian, right? uh, very clearly in, in um, this chapter. And Diltai's thought that he wants to develop is that philosophy is a manifestation of life. Right? Philosophy is a manifestation of life. Life is historical, therefore we have to think historically. Right. So what is um, essential if we're thinking historically, and we have to think historically, is that the idea of there being something outside of history, the idea of there being a way of doing philosophy that is not historical, that is somehow systematic or analytical or whatever is just a nonsense non-starter for Diltai and for Heidegger um, and indeed for me too. In paragraph 77, this defense of Diltai, which is really all it is in these pages, 
is done by way of a lengthy paraphrase of a letter exchange. It's rather sweet, actually, a letter exchange between Diltai and Count von York, who's a little-known figure, but you know, kind of lives on through the way he is picked up in these um, these pages by Heidegger. And it shows how York's views are consistent with Heidegger's views on hermeneutics, on what Heidegger would call productive logic. He talks about that in the introduction to Being in Time, and that's uh, picked up in relationship to uh, Count von York on page 451, in the middle of the page, and so on and so forth. Between you and I, you know, no one else is listening to this. I have no idea why Heidegger included these pages in Being in Time. They have the character, really, of notes. And so that's, I think, a good thing to realise about Heidegger, if Heidegger is a major thinker, as, you know, hopefully we all think he, he is, then how did he develop his work? Well, he developed his work by reading and making notes. And what we see in paragraph 77 are really a, a bundle of notes that might have been developed into something more, more focused and um, remote uh, had they developed. But, you know, he's writing Being in Time very fast. Division 2 is written quickly. He's writing his book for tenure, right? That's why he's he's getting this stuff down. And you can feel at the end of this chapter how exhausted Heidegger was. Heidegger's exhausted. The book begins to run out of steam at this point. And I find that interesting, I find exhaustion interesting. When we feel exhausted, that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, oh, I'm tired all the time. That's terrible. Well, yes, but isn't fatigue somehow phenomenologically interesting? Doesn't that mean that some other set of experiences becomes possible, right? Isn't fatigue, chronic fatigue, something suggestive of uh, different ways of thinking about human existence? Anyway, the book is beginning to exhaust itself. Heidegger's exhausted writing it. And we're, with this discussion of Diltai and Count von York, we're then poised at the beginning of the next and final chapter in the book. But, but we've forgotten something. And this is the main course. All that I've said so far is just the, the canapes and the hors d'oeuvres and the a little bit of pasta to stop you feeling hungry. And now we're getting stuck into the, the main course, paragraph 74. So let's turn to that. Paragraph 74, page 434, and the pages that follow. Very compressed, full of interesting remarks. Interesting remarks, that says nothing. Let me firstly remind you of why paragraph 74 is so important by, by linking it to the argument I've been trying to develop in my reading of Being in Time and which I've tried to develop in some of the writing I've done on Heidegger over the years, in particular the essay 
uh, originary inauthenticity in the book on Heidegger's being in time. I've kept repeating in these episodes that there are two formulae, two formulae that provide a clue to understanding what takes place in being in time. Dasein exists factically, and Dasein is thrown projection. Right? Dasein exists factically, and Dasein is thrown projection. Ultimately, I would like to modify the way we hear the formulations thrown projection or factical existing by placing the emphasis on the throne and the factical rather than on projection and existence. That is, my interpretation of being in time, which has been driving much of what I've been saying, but I've not been trying to bang you over the head with it. My interpretation of being in time is that Dasein is fundamentally a throne throwing off, a factical existing, rather than a throne projection, a factical existence. So I want to place the future, uh, place the emphasis upon throneness and facticity. What's continually appealed to in Heidegger, in being in time, and even more so in the later work, is a change in our capacity for hearing. That is, whether we listen away to the they, listen away to them, or whether we hear the appeal that Dasein makes to itself. We hear the appeal that we make, we understood as being in the world. It's my hope that a change in the way we hear these key formulae in being in time will produce what we might call, in a Wittgensteinian spirit, aspect change in the way we understand the project of fundamental ontology. So that's my kind of overriding ambition. I want to, you know, I, I'm I'm a I'm a Heideggerian, um, but um, a slightly anxious Heideggerian because I'm worried about all sorts of things in Heidegger's work. So how can we rethink those concepts in ways which avoids or makes more complicated certain outcomes of those concepts in Heidegger's own itinerary. So I'm asking for aspect change, a shift. But why is that necessary? Why is that aspect change necessary? It's necessary, I think, in order to move our understanding of being in time away from the heroic political pathos of authenticity, which is consummated in the discussions of fate and destiny in paragraph 74 of Being in Time. Carl Lovett. Carl Lovett, L-O-W-I-T-H, who was a student of Heidegger and who left, was forced to leave Germany because of who he was. He met Heidegger in 1936 in Rome. Heidegger visited Rome on kind of, a, as part of a kind of a German cultural delegation. And they met 
Heidegger and Lovitz in Rome and in Frascati. I like the idea of meeting in Frascati. You mentioned, you know, Heidegger and Carl. So, hi, hi, Martin. Oh, hi, Carl. Want a glass of Frascati? Yeah, don't mind if I do, Carl. Let's drink some Frascati. Of course, they didn't have like that. I'm just making things up. But Carl Lovitz, a student of Heidegger, a follower of Heidegger, but someone excluded um, from Germany by the fact of who he was, asks Heidegger, so what's the connection between your philosophy and your political commitment to National Socialism? Herr Heidegger. And the one word answer that Heidegger gives is historicity. Historicity is the connecting concept. So, what does that mean? Well, that's what's going on in paragraph 74. I'm building off the work of a number of people in making the argument I'm going to make in the next few minutes. But I won't bore you with listing all those people. I'll just mention one who is Philippe Lacoulabat. Philippe Lacoulabat. L-A-C-O-U-E-L-A-B-A-R-T-H-E. And Philippe Lacoulabat, who's known as Lacou, wrote a text called Transcendence Ends in Politics, which is contained in a book called Typography, published in, I think, 1989. And in that essay, he shows the influence of this paragraph 74 on Heidegger's political texts. I'm uh, secretly borrowing that argument. Well, not so secretly now. Uh, and also just to mention that Philippe Lacoulabat is a very interesting figure and it's sort of indicative of the way things go with, with philosophy in, in the continental tradition and elsewhere is that the certain people get remembered and certain people don't get remembered. So Philippe Lacoulabat and Jean-Luc Nancy wrote together for 20 years, you know, lived in the same house. Um, they actually exchanged wives at a certain point or the wives exchange husbands. Depends how you see things. And they both taught at the University of Strasbourg in the north northeast of France and made that a real intellectual center for a, a good long time. And Nancy is remembered, and Lacoulabat is not remembered as much. He died uh, younger. Nancy's still with us. Uh, Lacoulabat died young of cancer because he smoked like a sailor somehow taught in the United States at Berkeley for a, a number of years without ever speaking a word of English. I remember um, I met him a number of times and the only time I heard him ever speak English was one night when he was leaving a group of people. They'd all been talking French and he said, see you later, alligator. See you later, alligator. Only English I heard him speak. Anyway, Lacoulabat was a reader of texts. He wasn't doing um, first philosophy. He wasn't doing metaphysics. He wasn't trying to write some new ontology. He was simply commenting on texts and was a more 
his ambitions were more, were more modest and um, a fascinating figure. Anyways, he's in the background. Enough about that. So let me briefly restate the argument about the relationship between historicity and politics, because that will be a far from obvious argument why are those two things connected. Let's uh, have under our eyes page uh, 435. Darzine's authentic anticipation of its death is called fate. Darzine's authentic anticipation of its death is called fate. And this is designated as the originary historicizing Gishein, original happening of Darzain. Heidegger's claim in Division 2, Chapter 5, the discussion of historicity, is that the condition of possibility for any authentic understanding of history or any science of history lies in Darzain's historicity, in its historizing, which means the self-understanding of the temporal character of being human. Right? The condition of possibility for any historical understanding lies in finitude. So, to repeat, the meaning of the being of being human, the being of Dasein, is temporality. The meaning of temporality is finitude. Right? We saw that in the previous chapter. Dasein's authentic self-understanding of finitude is fate, and this originary historicizing is the condition of possibility for any authentic relation to history. And any authentic relation to history is what Heidegger means by world historical historicizing, which he discusses in paragraph 75. We just discussed that. It's clear that political events, political events such as revolutions, the founding of a state, or general social transformations would qualify as world historical events for Heidegger. The essence of history is Dasein's historizing, and history is rare. Heidegger's is a revolutionary theory of history. He says on page 435, a revolutionary theory of history, again, not unlike Walter Benjamin. These are the last, say, 10 lines on page 435. He says, only by the anticipation of death is every accidental and provisional possibility driven out. Only being free for death gives Darzan its goal outright and pushes existence into its finitude. Only once, once one has grasped the finitude of one's existence, it snatches one back from the endless multiplicity of possibilities which offer themselves as closest to one, those of comfortableness, shirking, and taking things lightly, and brings Dasein into the simplicity of its fate, shiksals. This is how we designate Dasein's primordial historizing, which lies in authentic resoluteness and in which Dasein hands itself down to itself free for death in a possibility which it has inherited and yet has chosen. 
It's a great quote. Now, turning the page to 436, now. So history is something we choose, something we rise up into when we can move away from the usual shirking and taking things lightly that defines our inauthentic everyday existence. When we rise up into history, we rise up into the simplicity of our fate. Now, it was established in Division 1, Chapter 4, that Dasein is always being with. Right? Dasein is mitzayin. So being there is being with. So the a priori condition of being in the world is being together with others in that world. We've known that for a long time. Now, as is well known, the everyday ontic social, Heidegger won't use that word, ontic social actuality of this a priori condition of being with is the they, what Heidegger calls the they. The one, Dasman. And this is determined as inauthentic because in such everyday experience, Dasan is not truly itself, but is, as it were, lived through by the customs and conventions of the existing social world. Think back all those weeks to that remark, Division 1, Chapter 4, in the they, everyone is the other and no one is themselves. Jeder ist der andere and keiner er selbst. Now, returning more properly to the argument of paragraph 74, if fateful, authentic Dasein is always already Mitzein, then such historicizing has to be what Heidegger calls co-historicizing. Here is the key claim. Historicizing isn't just my individual historicizing, it is the co-historicizing of me being with others. An authentic individual life is not one lived in isolation and in opposition to the shared life of the community understood as them. The question therefore arises, what is the authentic mode of being together with others? I've signaled this question a number of times in these um, in these talks, what is the authentic mode of being together with others? What is an authentic being with others' Daseins that escapes or masters the inauthenticity of the they? Heidegger writes, again, powerful stuff. This is on 436. To get the quote absolutely right, it's just above the middle of the page on page 436, just after footnote 2. But if fateful Dasein as being in the world exists essentially in being, in being with others, its historizing is a co-historizing and is determinative for it as destiny. So the way I rise up into the acceptance of my fate is with resoluteness. I resolutely anticipate my being towards death. I 
become ecstatically temporal, so on and so forth. Destiny is a common fate, a fate I share with others. So destiny is the authentic historizing that I share with others insofar as my individual fate is always already bound up with the collective destiny of the community to which I belong. Heidegger goes on, still on page 436, and I'm going to skip over a sentence and pick it up from about 10 lines up from the, the bottom, just after the footnote Romans 7. He says, Our fates, or probably a better translation would be the fates, let's just say our fates have already been guided in advance in our being with one another in the same world and in our resoluteness for definite possibilities only in communicating and in struggling does the power of destiny become free. The fates are guided from the front in being with one another in the same world. So resoluteness, resoluteness, my individual fate, is always already guided by the fate that I share with others, the which is the power of destiny here, right? the power of destiny. And this power of destiny becomes free in communication and in struggle. Communication and struggle. Mit, Teilung and Kampf. The mention of um, struggle is repeated in these, uh, these lines. So the fates of authentic individual Daseins are guided from the front by the destiny of the collective, a destiny that first becomes free for itself or self-conscious, not the term that Heidegger we use, self-conscious in the activity of communication and struggle. Now, obviously, the word struggle, uh, Kampf, has acquired some various political connotations between the period that saw the publication of Being in Time and uh, the present, right? Heidegger reads Hitler's Mein Kampf, My Struggle, in 1930 and is impressed. But that, um, of course, that idea of calling a book My Struggle has also been picked up, imitated, extended, kind of ad nauseam uh, by Carlo Knosgod in his uh, monumental autobiography, My Struggle. So the notion of struggle is a little bit compromised. But let's just leave it at that. Here is the, here's the kicker. Here's where this is taking us. So, Fateful Dasein is with others. That co-historizing with others is destiny. That destiny is something which is expressed in communication and struggle. And he then says a few lines further up, sort of bang in the middle of page 436, this is how we designate the historizing of the community of a people. This is how we designate the historizing of the community of the people. Damit bezeichnen wir das Geschehen der Gemeinschaft des Volkes. Right? 
the concept here is folk. Again, strong concept. Problematic concept. Maybe an essential concept. We can think about it. The argument is that the authentic communal mode of being with that masters the inauthenticity of the they is the people. So the, the question that's been kind of in our minds, reading being in time, is that we have the they, right, them, das man, the one. That's inauthentic average everydayness. That's my being with others defined by curiosity, ambiguity, and idle talk. What is the counter-concept to that? Well, the counter-concept to that, it would appear, is the people. And in my view, it's the possible political realization of a resolute and authentic people in opposition to the inauthentic nihilism of modernity and the craving for the modern that we just saw in paragraph 75. This uh, possible realization of a people in opposition to the modern particularly when that gets understood in relationship to technology by Heidegger, as it does from the mid-1930s onwards. This is what Heidegger would call in 1935 in the introduction to metaphysics, the inner truth and greatness of national socialism. The inner truth and greatness of national socialism. This is in 1935. This is... uh, a year or so he's, after he's resigned his rectorship, his position as provost of his home university, Freiburg. Now, what does it mean, this idea of the inner truth and greatness of national socialism? I think it's the idea of uh, the formation of a people that would be a way of opposing uh, a modernity defined by technology or we could say defined by capitalism, if that makes us feel more comfortable. What's interesting is that when Heidegger uses those words, the inner truth and greatness of national socialism, in 1935, he publishes that text in 1953. Introduction to Metaphysics appears in 1953. Heidegger changes nothing, or says he's changed nothing in the text between 35 and 53, quite a lot's happened in those years in Germany and in the world. Can you really change nothing? Actually, he changed a number of things in the text. He's lying and he knows he's lying, but he didn't change the remark about the inner truth and greatness of National Socialism. Okay, so imagine that you're a young German, an educated intelligent young German after the Second World War and you're trying to make sense of what happened. You're trying to make sense of the National Socialist catastrophe. And you find out that you've actually been taught by people that have been through the war and haven't really changed the way they're teaching after the war, that kind of go on as your professors of philosophy regardless. This was the situation of a young, young philosopher, a young German philosopher, who I will name in a moment, the first thing that young German philosopher publishes is a review 
of Introduction to Metaphysics from 1953. It's a review published in a newspaper in, in Frankfurt, uh, the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung, a very important newspaper. The essay that is published, the review, is called, in German, I'm quoting a lot of German today, I'm sorry, the review is called in German, Mit Heidegger gegen Heidegger Denken, Thinking with Heidegger against Heidegger, Thinking with Heidegger against Heidegger. That's how I would try to describe the effort that I've been trying to make in these, these episodes, to think with Heidegger against Heidegger at the same time. Anyway, the piece in 1953 was published by Jürgen Habermas, and it was the first, I think it was the first publication that Habermas uh, had in print. I think it's an interesting moment. And he's thinking about that question, well, how, given what's happened in German history, can you leave unchanged that remark about the inner truth and greatness of National Socialism. That is Heidegger's deafness to what's happened. And in a way, his, uh, yeah, his silence on what happened. Okay. So, on my interpretation, there is a systematic philosophical basis to Heidegger's political commitment, which is, which is due to the specific way in which Heidegger develops the concept of authenticity in Division II of Being and Time. And this culminates in the concept of the people. This isn't accidental or peripheral, it's central. That is the only way in which Heidegger can conceive of an authentic mode of human being together or community is in terms of the unity of a specific people a particular nation. And it is the political expression of that possibility that Heidegger saw in National Socialism in 1933. And the name of that people is the Germans, die Deutschen. An interesting name for a people because the Germans um, as a people were not unified by a state until 1871 or thereabouts. The state is formed very late in relationship to Prussian hegemony. Before that, Germany didn't exist. Germany was a, a set of regions, free cities, principalities, dukedoms, so on and so forth. What unified Germany was uh, language. And that language was a language that was spread all across Northern Europe. So it's a strange idea of, uh, of Germanness, which Heidegger has. Not a strange idea. It, it can be confusing to us when... So when Heidegger is quoting Hölderlin, as he often does in these, when he's thinking politically, when Hölderlin talks about the Germans, he's thinking about the Germans as a, a language group uh, spread over a, a vast you know, geographical area, he's not thinking about a state. And Heidegger in many ways conflates those two, the idea of language and the, and, and the, the idea of state. There's another point here which is important, which is that Heidegger is a thinker of the one. He's a thinker of the one. In the sense in which when Heidegger's thinking about who we are, we begin from an idea of mindness, mindness, which is me, that's where we begin being in time. That's one. 
the idea of um, my social life, inauthentic average everydayness, is the one as the they self. And then the counter-concept to the they is the one of the people. Right? So Heidegger goes from different moves across different conceptions of the one. He's a thinker of the one. So to that extent, we can say there's a, a henological logic in Heidegger's work, a logic of the one. And um, that could be opposed. We could think about thinking as a thinking of the two or the three. And that would be a way of breaking with this henological logic, this idea that we are wedded to the idea of the one. And there are thinkers who try to think in terms of the two, in terms of the three. Levinas, thinkers of multiplicity like Deleuze and Badiou and so on and so forth. Another person who's been who's thought along those lines is you know, Hannah Arendt, who has an idea of plurality, that we have to begin our political thinking from an idea of plurality. And plurality is something uh, positive. Plurality is, for Heidegger, negative, or it has to be thought within the horizon of the they, in the horizon of the one as the they. So there can be no positive idea of plurality in Heidegger's work. Okay, where does this uh, argument take us? In my view, the urgent task of Heidegger interpretation, provided, of course, that one is not a Nazi, and I'm not, or I hope not, and provided that one is still in the business of thinking that Heidegger is a great philosopher, as I do, is the greatest philosopher of the 20th century, as I do, the urgent task of Heidegger interpretation is to try and defuse the systematic link between Heidegger's philosophy and his politics. How do we do that? How do we defuse the connection between Heidegger's philosophy and his politics? The key concept for establishing the link between philosophy and politics for Heidegger is authenticity. I think it's authenticity that's driving the logic of politics in, as it washes up in being in time. Therefore, if we want to criticize that, we have to criticize the idea of authenticity. This is why the idea of inauthenticity and what I call originary inauthenticity is one of the reasons why it's important, important to me anyway. Now, there are different ways of making this argument. There are people, it's, it's surprising actually that the, the idea of authenticity, which I've relentlessly tried to render more complex in work over a quite a long period of time. That idea of authenticity often survives intact in work that's influenced by Heidegger. People will be against Nazism, but in favor of authenticity. I don't think it's so simple. I think we have to lose the idea of authenticity. And there are people that will say, if we want to, you know, if we want to hang on to an idea of personal responsibility and individual autonomy that's influenced by Heidegger, then we have to hang on to an idea of authenticity. I'm not so sure. There's a lovely remark that Adorno makes, I think it's in the Minima Moralia, where he talks about the need to take on board the stigma of the inauthentic, to take on board the stigma of the inauthentic and not to endorse some quasi-secularized but essentially religious notion of authentic personhood. 
So a way in which I've tried to do this in my work is by developing an idea of originary inauthenticity and an idea of what I call heteroaffectivity. Actually, we need to we need to rethink concepts like autonomy and the kind of autonomy orthodoxy which governs certain ways of thinking about moral and political philosophy. And we need to think about these things in more flexible, nuanced, and interesting ways. The idea behind originary inauthenticity is that human existence is fundamentally shaped in relationship to a brute facticity or thrownness, which cannot be mastered through any existential projection. Authenticity always slips back into a prior inauthenticity from which it cannot escape, but which it would like to evade. And it's this movement of evasion of the self's turning away from itself. It's in this movement of evasion where Dasein's embeddedness in factical existence is disclosed. From the perspective of originary inauthenticity, human existence is something that is first and foremost experienced as a burden, a weight, something to which I'm riveted without being able to know why or know further. Inauthentic existence has the character of an irreducible and intractable thatness, what Heidegger calls in um, chapter 5, Division 1, Das Das Seines Da, the that of its there. I feel myself bound to the that of my there, the sheer fact of my facticity that invites some sort of response. Now, this is where my proposed aspect change begins to kick in. The nature of the response to our facticity will not, does not necessarily have to be as it is in Division 2 of Being in Time, namely the authentic and heroic decision of existence that comes into the simplicity of its fate by shattering itself against death. That phrase, shattering itself against death, is a phrase Heidegger uses on 437 in italics, shouting out loud, shattering itself against death. No, the response to our facticity does not need to be the heroic mastery of the everyday in the authentic presence of the moment of vision, which produces a kind of ecstasy or rapture, right? We've seen those terms um, last week and the week before. On the contrary, the response to the fact of my finitude can be a, a more passive and less heroic decision a decision made in the face of a facticity whose demand can never be mastered and which faces me like a riddle I cannot solve. And as I try and show elsewhere in work on Heidegger and other work I've done, this situation calls for comic acknowledgement, comic acknowledgement rather than ecstatic affirmation. The problem of Heidegger's politics is that what is, um, is that Heidegger's politics, we could say, is a tragic, heroic politics. 
and I'm interested in the comic and in humour, amongst other things. Now, so I think this this is a reading of Heidegger that can be developed on the basis of the text itself, and maybe now, maybe now, maybe now, maybe now, you're beginning to get a sense of why I've placed the emphasis upon certain things that I've emphasised. That whole discussion of conscience a few episodes back, and when I was talking about the double nullity of Dasein in the experience of conscience, this double impotentialization at the heart of Dasein's movement, it's happening, it's historizing, uh, gives us another way of thinking about authenticity. And everything turns here on questions of power and powerlessness. Heidegger writes on 436, we're still moving around these same pages. On 436, he says about eight lines in on 436, the paragraph beginning, if Dasein by anticipation lets death become powerful in itself, then as free for death, Dasein understands itself in its superior power, the power of its finite freedom, so that in this freedom, which is only in its having chosen to make such a choice, it can take over the powerlessness of abandonment to its having done so, and can thus come to have a clear vision for the accidents of the situation that has been disclosed. The issue is whether Dasein, in letting death become powerful in itself, can take over the powerlessness of abandonment and overcome it, or whether... Power always has to be measured by the limitation of power, by an essential impotence. And what has to be worked out here is the, the phrase that Heidegger uses, three lines up from the bottom of page 436, fate is that powerless superior power. Powerless superior power. What a strange formulation. Or the Ohnmächtige Übermacht, right? The impotent superpower. So how do we think about the relationship between power and powerlessness? How do we map that onto questions of authenticity and inauthenticity? And what are the uh, implications of that for our thinking about history and politics? These are the kind of things that are on my mind. Now, there's a lot more to say. But I've already said probably far too much. So let me conclude by mentioning two more concepts from this chapter. The two more two concepts that we need to really get uh, a sense of what is going on in this rich and interesting chapter. And those two concepts are heritage and repetition. Heritage and repetition, and they're linked. And now we're pretty much, we're still in paragraph 74, but we're looking now at pages, the bottom of page 437, second half of 437 through to 439, heritage. Heritage is the way in which we take over our factical throneness, authentically and resolutely. When we take it over, we hand this down to ourselves, Heidegger says. So what Heidegger's doing here, and again, this is 
not dependent completely, but he's using, you know, he's using elements of things that are possible in the German language to make his point. Tradition can be thought of as a, an idea of handing down, like the handing down of a ring, überliefen, to, to hand something down, überlieferung. And this idea of um, handing something down is a way of thinking the past, which wouldn't just be tradition. So this is, this is the bullet point. The, opposite, the, the concept which opposes the idea of tradition as dead tradition, tradition that needs to be destroyed in Heidegger, the counter-concept to tradition is heritage. Heritage is an active handing down. And I've got a lot to say about the idea of heritage. It's a key concept in um, Derrida's work, by the by. But it's linked in these pages to the idea of repetition. So in 438, he says, this is three quarters of the way down the page on 438, Heidegger writes, in repetition, fateful destiny can be disclosed explicitly as bound up with the heritage which has come down to us. By repetition, Dasein first has its own history made manifest. Right? History is made manifest in and as repetition. That's the thought, as a link between heritage and repetition. But to unravel these two concepts, heritage, right? So heritage is the, the active, the good way of taking something over, opposed to tradition, is something which is enacted as repetition, fetching back. And those two concepts are linked, as I've just said, and they're developed in the following passage, which is the last thing I'm going to quote today. But it's a long one, but it's a good one. This is 437. So if you get your books open on page 437, halfway down the page, this is going to be a long quotation. The resoluteness which comes back to itself and hands itself down, right? This is the idea of tradition as handing itself down. The resoluteness which comes back to itself and hands itself down then becomes the repetition of a possibility of existence has come down to us. Repeating is handing down explicitly. That is to say, going back into the possibilities of the Dasein that has been there. The authentic repetition of a possibility of existence that has been the possibility that Dasein may choose its hero. We saw that phrase last week in the last episode. May choose its hero is grounded existentially in anticipatory resoluteness. For it is in resoluteness that one first chooses the choice. One first chooses the choice which makes one free for the struggle of loyally following in the footsteps of that which can be repeated. But when one has, by repetition, handed down to oneself a possibility that has been, the Dasein that has been there is not disclosed in order to be actualized over again. The repeating of that which is possible does not bring again something that is past, nor does it bind the present back to that which is already has been outstripped, Arising as it does from a resolute projection of oneself, repetition 
does not let itself be persuaded of something by what is past, just in order that this, as something which was formerly actual, may recur. Rather, the repetition makes a reciprocative rejoinder to the possibility of that existence which has been there. But when such a rejoinder is made to this possibility in a resolution, it is made in a moment of vision. And as such, it is at the same time a disavowal of that which in the today is working itself out as the past. Repetition does not abandon itself to that which is past, nor does it aim at progress. In the moment of vision, authentic existence is indifferent to both these alternatives. I told you this is going to be a long quote. We characterize repetition as a mode of that resoluteness which hands itself down, the mode by which Dasein exists explicitly as fate. But if fate constitutes the primordial historicality of Dasein, then history has its essential importance neither in what is past nor in the today and its connection with what is past, but in that authentic historizing of existence which arises from Dasein's future. As a way of being for Dasein, history has its roots so essentially in the future that death, as that possibility of Dasein, which we have already characterized, throws anticipatory existence back upon its factical throneness, and so, for the first time, imparts to having been its peculiarly privileged position in the historical. Authentic being towards death, that is to say, the finitude of temporality is the hidden basis of Dasein's historicality. Dasein does not first become historical in repetition, but because it is historical as temporal, it can take itself over in its history by repeating. For this, no historiology, science of history, is yet needed. This is a brilliant passage, complex, dense. A few thoughts. The theme of repetition is very important. We have seen how it is that which underwrites the constancy of the self. The constancy of the self consists in the repetition of the three ecstasies of temporality. Right? The two come, the having been, the present in the moment of vision, the three at once. Repetition at the level of Dasein's historicity of our happening, our happening, right, is the explicit handing over, the explicit taking over of possibilities that have come down to us from the past, right? So our happening as a being, our happening as a being is the taking over of possibilities that have come to us from the past. That's repetition. How does one characterize this repetition? It is not, Heidegger says, uh, top of the page, it is not uh, a bringing back. It is not a bringing back to itself of something that is past. This is the weird thought. Stay with this thought. It's very strange, but it's very important. This is not the bringing back of something that's past. It's rather, he says, the reciprocative rejoinder, reciprocative rejoinder 
to a possibility of existence which has been there. This word uh, rejoinder, Erwiderung, is a response to the possibilities of the past. The point that Heidegger is making is that repetition has a very peculiar character. This is this is the point that I'd like to you to understand, make sense of, use in whatever way you wish. Repetition is not the repetition of something past, but the repetition of the possible orientated towards the future. One repeats from out of the future. One repeats from out of the future. So history, history has its existential roots in the future of death that throws Dasein back onto its factical throneness. The concealed ground of Dasein's historicity of its happening is authentic being towards death. That is to say, towards anticipation, towards possibility. It is because Dasein is temporal in terms of the three ecstasies of time, it's because it's temporal that it's historical and that it can take itself over in repetition and become historical. So history is not something that is by the fact that it was, right? History is not the past. History is not reducible to the facts of the past, to what is kind of scattered around, present at hand, that we can kind of pull together into a history book. History is something that comes to be from out of the future. That is to say, and this is the point, history is something that has the power of a beginning. History is something that has the power of a beginning. This is why history is seldom, why history is rare. History is an event, a transformative event, like a a revolution, like an utter social transformation. So what I'm asking you to think about is this idea of history. We can think about history as, you know, one damn thing after another, as a series of events within a presence at hand, linear sequence of time. This would be an idea of history as dead tradition, flat continuity, stability, status quo. Or we can think about history as the possibility of emergence, the possibility of beginning, which we can initiate collectively. And this idea of history is something you can find, obviously, in Heidegger, and as I've said a couple of times, in Benjamin and a number of other figures. I remember when I was a student, I'm finishing now, I remember when I was a student and in the 1980s in University of Essex in England, we, and we were very fond of the, the Sandinista in Nicaragua. They were kind of heroes of people like me, students, you know, stupid, pasty-faced English, you know, leftists. But there was this Sandinista poster which said in Spanish something like, you know, the future is ours because we possess our history. 
the future is ours because we possess our history. It's kind of like that in Heidegger. So we have a revolutionary idea of history. The final question would be, is that good? Is that bad? What do we think of that? That comes down to what we think about the idea of revolution, which is a separate topic for another occasion. Okay, so that is historicity and politics. If you've got all the way to the end, bless your hearts and uh, thank you for listening. And next time we'll be back in the next episode, which will be on time. Thank you.